0: Hello, welcome to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World, with Cornell University Professor Barry Strauss, military historian, expert in the ancient world, and best selling author. During this podcast, Barry and his guests will share stories about fascinating and controversial people and events in history and myth. And now, Professor Barry Strauss. Welcome. Welcome back to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World. I am so excited to be back with you. It's been too long a time. I don't have to tell you that there's been a lot of water under the bridge since we last met two years ago. We're nothing if not rowers, and so we want to get to the oars and move the boat forward. So that's what we're going to do. We forge on. Today, and in the next two podcasts of the season, we're going to talk about the Roman emperors. But before I do, I want to tell you a little bit about what I've been doing since we last met, because as a segue into today's topic, I've been writing a new book. I've been researching and writing a new book about the beginning of the Roman Empire. It's called The War That Made the Roman Empire. Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium, and it's about this great war that took place in 31 BC or BCE between the forces of the Roman East and the forces of the Roman West, and that culminated in one of the most famous naval battles in history, the Battle of Actium on September 2nd of 31 BC. It's a war of surprises. It's a war of technology. It's a war of strategy. It's a war of propaganda. And it's a war that involves one of the most famous and fascinating women in history, Cleopatra. And I try to put all of this in my book. And the book is going to go on sale on March 22nd. So I hope you will join me in my excitement and take a look at the book. For now, though, we're going to turn to the Roman emperors. We're going to talk about mothers and sons in a future podcast, about love and sex. And today, we're going to talk about war and peace. So let's turn now to the Pax Romana, the great Roman peace. It's a phrase that many of us will be familiar with. It refers to a period of about 200 years, the first two centuries of the Common Era, Centuries that, from the Roman point of view, were relatively peaceful. Mind you, the emphasis is on the word relatively. Because the history of the Roman Empire is the history of war and the history of the preservation of peace. So let's unpack this word peace in Latin from the Roman point of view. Uh, the Latin word for peace is pax, p-a. X. And it's similar in some ways to the English equivalent, but it's also different. Pax comes from the verb pango, which means to fasten or to join. And pax is something that you fasten, you join together, you make. It's an active thing. The Roman pax is more like pacification, or pacification, than our word peace. For the Romans, peace is not something that just happens. That's not the way the Romans look at it. The Romans would never say, all we are saying is give peace a chance. In fact, I'm more likely to say, all we're saying is give war a chance. I'm kidding. Uh, But for the Romans, peace is something you have to work at. It's an active process. And peace is the result of war. Peace is the result of pacification, of diplomacy, perhaps, agreement, and as often as not, of war. So the Roman peace is the Roman pacification, the Roman achievement of peace through war. Ironic and paradoxical, but that is the way the Romans looked at things. Romans fought a lot. The Romans engaged in a lot of war. We might ask why. Well, one reason is very simple. People tend to do what we're good at. And the Romans were really, really good at war. There are a lot of reasons for this, but two in particular stand out. One is that the Romans were good at war because they were good at alliances, and they were good at managing alliances and creating alliances that gave them access to enormous amounts of manpower. With this manpower uh, as a demographic base, the Romans were able to withstand defeats and setbacks in war and to come back and win. They were good at managing other people, but they were also good at managing their armies and using their armies as ways of assimilation, we might say, of ways of bringing new people into the Roman order and new people into the Roman world, allowing them to become Roman citizens after a career of service in the Roman army, and thereby extending the manpower pull that the Romans had. The second reason the Romans were very good at war is that they were good at order and discipline. Various people who the Romans conquered wrote about this, and they just they weren't happy to be conquered by the Romans, and they thought the Romans were, were brutal, but they couldn't help admiring the order and discipline of the Roman legions, the famous Roman roads, the engineering feat, the Roman camps, the marching camps that they established every day before the night. These are among key reasons why the Romans were so successful at war. Also, the Romans rewarded politicians for being successful generals. Most successful Roman politicians, at least in the Republic, were also successful generals. So there are lots of reasons, deep reasons uh, in Roman culture and society that made Rome so warlike. There's a couple of other factors that we want to keep in mind to understand uh, the Roman peace and the Roman war that undergirded it. One is being an emperor was not really a civilian position in Rome. It was always rooted in the military. The very word emperor, the word that we translate as emperor in Latin, that is imperator. And imperator does not mean emperor in the sense of king. Rather, it is a word that comes from the military context, and it means victorious commander. A general who's won special victories is hailed by his troops as an imperator. It's not any garden variety general. So the Roman emperor is regarded as a great military success, whether he really is or not. Um, in addition to this, every emperor depended on the support of the troops. Nobody could afford to be emperor without having the army on his side. Uh, there's a story about one of the Roman emperors, Septimius Severus, who says to his son while Septimius is on his deathbed, pay the soldiers and don't worry about anything else. In effect, that's what he says, and it's a good motto. It's a good lesson for the Roman emperors. Always pay the soldiers, and the wise ones did. Finally, the Romans faced genuine military threats. They had conquered this enormously impressive empire that at its height stretched from Scotland to Damascus and for a brief period even further, all the way to the Persian Gulf. But nonetheless, there were significant military threats on the horizon. In the north and the west, there were the Germanic peoples, unconquered. In fact, they had defeated the Romans, and they represented a threat. And in the east, there were two Persian empires in succession. First, the Parthian Empire that was relatively peaceful and relatively decentralized. And so, in general, not that big a threat to the Romans. But that was replaced in the third century by the Sasanian Empire. And that was relatively centralized, organized, militarized, and a big threat to the Roman Empire. On top of this, the empire consisted of at least 50 million people, perhaps more, and significant numbers of them were not all that happy at having been conquered by the Romans. And so the empire, particularly in the first two centuries of our era, is a story of rebellions and breakaway movements. So there's a great deal that the Roman military has to do, even during the period of the Roman peace. And so for cultural reasons and pragmatic reasons, the Romans, even when they have peace, have to pay attention to war. Well, I want to discuss this. I want to give examples of this with the cases of three particular emperors, Augustus, Trajan, and Marcus Aurelius. I always go back to Augustus. I can't help it. I find him fascinating, and I think he's a genuinely significant figure. He's the founder of the Roman Empire in, insofar as it's a monarchy. The Romans had an empire earlier in the republic. uh, But the republic in its last century was in serious trouble as a polity with enormous forces of disorder involved and a series of civil wars, the last of which was won by Augustus, who ends up ending the era of civil wars and establishing the Roman monarchy, what we call the Roman Empire or the imperial period. He's in power from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., or if you prefer, 27 B.C.E. to 14 C.E. But even earlier than that, he first is on the political scene beginning in the year 44 B.C. B.C.E., when he's only 19 years old. And he is a major, major player. By the following year 43, he's one of the three leading men in Rome. He has a long life and is tremendously important. We mostly remember him as the Emperor Augustus, in which he establishes the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. But earlier in his life, he was anything but peaceful. The first part of his career, down to the year 30 BC, so from 44 to 30, or 14 years, He spends that period in a series of civil wars, civil wars culminating in the Battle of Actium and the Actium Campaign. These are nearly 15 years of on-again, off-again fighting in Italy, in Greece, in Sicily, and in Egypt. And it's fighting on land and at sea. Augustus, who in this earlier period we tend to refer to as Octavian, he was born Gaius Octavius. He was adopted by his great uncle Julius Caesar after Caesar's assassination. It was in Caesar's will. At that point, he took Caesar's name and became Gaius Julius Caesar. He would have been, according to Roman practice, he would have been Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, Although he avoided that name, we historians tend to call him Octavian until the year 27 when he takes the title of Augustus. And Octavian was a fighter. Octavian was a warlord, not to put too fine a point on it. It's not that he himself was a great general. He wasn't a great general. But he was a great leader of men and a great politician and a great talent scout. And he knew how to get great generals to fight for him in particular, his childhood friend, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, who was a great general, a great general and a great admiral. And with the help of Agrippa, Octavian, first of all, he fought so many different people. At first, early in his career, he's fighting one of his rivals for Caesar's affection, Mark Antony. And then having defeated Antony on behalf of the Roman Senate, he turns around makes a deal with Antony and marches on Rome, defeats the Senate, and gets himself elected to the highest position in Rome at the age of 20, which was utterly unconstitutional. He and Antony turn eastward, defeat the assassins of Caesar, the surviving leadership of the assassins, Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi in northeastern Greece, and then he and Antony divide the empire between them. In the beginning, there's a third partner named Lepidus, but Lepidus is quickly forced off the stage. The empire is divided between Antony and Octavian. And as usual in Roman history, they were more rivals than partners, and they eventually turned on each other. At first, Antony is fighting in the east, attempting to defeat the Parthians the Persian Empire, the only serious competition to the Roman Empire in the ancient world by this point. There was no other imperial state besides Rome and the Parthians. Octavian's in the west. He has to deal with a revolt in Italy. And then he has to deal with a warlord in Sicily, the son of Pompey the Great, Sextus Pompey. And with the help of Agrippa, Octavian builds a navy. He builds what becomes the colonel of the Roman imperial fleet and he defeats Sextus Pompey and drives him out of Sicily. He then turns eastward. By this point, Antony has given up his alliance with Octavian, which was symbolized by his marriage to Octavian's sister, Octavia. Rome is nothing if not a soap opera. And he had dropped Octavia for a more desirable partner, the queen of Egypt, the richest woman in the world, Cleopatra. And Antony and Cleopatra build a great navy, which challenges Octavian for the rule of the Roman Empire. But Octavian, with the help of Agrippa, is up to the challenge. And they defeat Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium, as I said, in September 2nd, 31 BC, force them back to Egypt. In the following year, Octavian marches to Egypt. Antony and Cleopatra each commit suicide in turn. And Octavian is now master of the Roman world, and he pockets Egypt. It had been an independent kingdom. It now is a province of the Roman Empire, but it's not governed by the Roman state. It's governed personally by Octavian and his representatives. It's very important because Egypt was extraordinarily wealthy, probably the wealthiest place in the ancient world. And by having this money, Octavian has the resources he needs to create a new empire. So what does he do? What is the plan? Well, on the one hand, Octavian wants to demobilize. The Roman armies had reached a height of 60 legions in the era of the Civil Wars, and Octavian reduces them to 28 legions. From 60 legions to 28 legions, the entire Roman army consists of about 300,000 men. As for the veterans? Octavian gives them land in Italy and around the empire, and he also gives them pensions, and he has that money from Egypt, which he can use to fund those pensions. Ultimately, he has to turn to taxing the rich. The money from Egypt eventually runs out. It's not sufficient, but it gives him a base. With this demobilization, Octavian declares peace. In Rome, a gesture takes place The doors of the temple of Janus are closed, which is the symbol of peace. And this very rarely happens in Roman history. It's the beginning of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. 200 years of relative peace and relative lack of expansion, at least compared to the previous 200 years. Certainly at sea, the Roman peace is a very real thing. After the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, it is centuries before the Romans fight another great naval battle at sea. That's how real the Roman peace is at sea. On land, the Roman peace is less successful, and there are a variety of civil wars now and then, still, on the whole. Compared to the 200 years from, say, 200 B.C. to the beginning of the Common Era, the 200 years that followed Augustus were very peaceful indeed, but not completely peaceful. Augustus's... Goal as emperor, his motto, if you will, is something that is stated by his favorite poet, Virgil, in his epic, The Aeneid. Virgil says that Rome shall have imperium sine fine, empire without end. And that was Augustus's goal, empire without end. After he had defeated his enemies in the Civil War, Augustus is responsible for conquests in Spain, in the Alps, in the former Yugoslavia, and and then the suppression of a rebellion in the former Yugoslavia, and finally in Germany. Augustus's goal is to complete a project that had been begun by his predecessor, Julius Caesar, a project of conquering Germany, conquering Germany all the way from the Rhineland to the Elbe River, so what nowadays would count as the center of modern Germany or a little bit to the east and a series of campaigns in which he sent his generals through Germany, Augustus thought that he had achieved this very thing, that he had added Germany to the Roman Empire. The various German peoples had been defeated. They'd been pacified. And the Romans were establishing colonies. They actually laid out the forum and the foundations of some of the major buildings, the temples, and the public buildings of some Roman colonies in Germany. But the Germans were anything but defeated and anything but willing to accept Roman rule. And in the year nine of our era, they struck back. They were led by a man named Arminius, a remarkable person. He was a prince of one of the German tribes. And he served the Romans as an officer in the Roman military. He was given Roman citizenship. And he was even made an equestrian, a Roman knight which is the second highest grade that a Roman citizen could have, second only to being a senator. And no doubt Arminius would have achieved senatorial status someday, but he had something different in mind. He resented the way the Romans were treating his people, the way they taxed them, the way they abused them, the way they humiliated them, and he decided to strike back. He organized a resistance. And although the Germans had not historically been armed to the degree that uh, they later would be. Ever since Germany was invaded by Julius Caesar, the Germans began to arm themselves and to prepare for fighting. Arminius used his particular position as a confidant of the Roman general in charge of Germany to betray him, to lead the Roman legions on their annual maneuvers, a march through Germany, to lead them down the garden path, as you, if you will, to lead them into an ambush at a place called the Tudorberger Woods, the Tudorberger Woods, which are located in northwestern Germany near the city of Osnabrück. Fascinating story that archaeology has actually found the site of this ambush, this remarkable ambush that Arminius led the unsuspecting Romans into. And before the slaughter was over, the Germanic warriors destroyed three Roman legions, approximately 15,000 men. It was an utter massacre, and very few Romans survived to tell the tale. The story goes that when Augustus got the report of what had happened, he, referring to the general who had been in charge, the Roman general who had been in charge, a man named Varus, Augustus supposedly said, Quintilius Varus, Give me back my legions. This is a very significant loss. Varus, by the way, committed suicide. He went down with his troops rather than coming back to Rome in shame. The Romans had 28 legions. And as a result of this, they lost three of those legions. So they lost 10% of their military manpower. That is very, very significant. And it took the Romans quite some time before they were able to rebuild, build back those three lost legions. This is five years before Augustus finally dies at an advanced age in his 70s, not the way that he wanted to end his career as a conqueror. And Augustus and his successor, Tiberius, attempt to win Germany back. Arminius himself uh, doesn't live much longer. He's uh, he's killed in uh, civil conflict in Germany, and the Romans win some victories. But only two years after Augustus' death, his successor, Tiberius, decides to pull the plug, to stop the offensive in Germany, and to pull the Romans back to the Rhineland, to the area on both sides of the River Rhine. And indeed, for most of antiquity, with the exception of a short period when the Romans expand in southern Germany, southwestern Germany, for most of antiquity, the Rhineland is as far east as the Romans get. Most of Germany remains free of Roman control, and that has really significant consequences, both for the history of Germany, for the history of Rome, for the history of Europe, and for the history of the world. If the Romans had conquered Germany, then Germans, like French people, might be speaking a Romance language instead of a Germanic language, and I wouldn't be speaking English today if that had happened. We'd be speaking a language probably closer to French. But All of this as a consequence of the defeat of the Roman Empire in the year nine. Tiberius knew that not every Roman was happy with his decision to stop the offensive in Germany. And he told people that it had been Augustus's idea, that on his deathbed, Augustus had told Tiberius to stop expanding the empire. That seems like a very dubious story to me and to a lot of my colleagues since Augustus was committed to expansion. But Tiberius? was not. He himself was a professional soldier. He had fought in Germany. He had fought in the former Yugoslavia. He knew how serious a business war was, and he was ready to pull back. Now, over the course of the next century, on the whole, the Romans don't expand. On the whole, they follow Tiberius's policy rather than Augustus's. Uh, The one big exception is Britain. Under one of Tiberius' successors, Claudius, the Romans attempted to conquer Britain, or they began the conquest of Britain. Julius Caesar had invaded Britain, but he hadn't left a lasting presence there. Claudius is determined to make Britain a Roman province, and indeed, it does happen, but it takes decades and decades. Uh, there's a great deal of resistance in Britain. There's also revolts in this period, uh, a number of revolts, but probably the most famous one is the Judean revolt, which takes place under Nero and requires several Roman emperors to reconquer. We'll be talking more about that in a later podcast. For now, I want to turn to Trajan. Trajan was emperor from 98 to 117, so about 20 years he was emperor. And when I think of Trajan, poor Trajan, I can't help thinking about the put-down line that a great modern historian said about Trajan. He said of Trajan, he looked stupid and was believed honest. That's not entirely fair. Trajan probably was honest, and he wasn't stupid. He was a soldier. He had a passion for soldiering. He was born in Spain. He came from a military family. His father had been a very prominent Roman general. And Trajan shared his father's love of the military life. Trajan loved what one contemporary called the camps, the bugles and trumpets, the sweat and dust and heat of the sun. Trajan cared deeply about his troops, whom he referred to as, quote, my excellent and most loyal fellow soldiers. He ordered special rules to make it easier for soldiers to make wills, and he founded veterans colonies on the Rhine and the Danube frontiers and in North Africa. He campaigned in person, and he paid special attention to the soldiers. Trajan had the common touch. He ate in the military mess. He shared his men's hardships. He marched on foot and forded rivers with the rank and file. When bandages gave out during one of his battles, he is said to have had his own clothing cut up into strips to serve in their place. He honored his fallen soldiers with an altar and an annual ceremony. And he committed himself to expanding the Roman Empire in a way that none of his predecessors had done since Augustus. He engaged in two great conquests. The first was the conquest of Dacia, roughly modern Romania. This was an independent kingdom led by a warlike ruler, one that had threatened the Romans, wasn't a very serious threat, but it caused problems for Rome on the border. That's one reason why Trajan wanted to conquer it. Uh, The other reason that he wanted to conquer it was that Dacia was enormously wealthy. And so in two campaigns, the first one beginning in the year 101 and the second one in the year 105, Trajan and the Roman legions conquered Dacia. It was an epic achievement. It involved an enormous amount of engineering, building of a famous bridge, paving of roads, crossing rivers, fighting on land and on water, in battles and in sieges. And ultimately, it was a complete success. The Romans wiped out the ruling elite of Dacia and indeed wiped out a large part of the population and ultimately sent in Roman colonists to replace them. It's so successful, if that's the right word, uh, so dramatic a demographic event, and so brutal a demographic event, that although the Romans ruled Dacia for only 200 years, to this day, the people who live there speak a language derived from Latin. They speak a Romance language. They speak Romanian, Dacian disappeared with barely a trace. As for the profits of victory, they were substantial. The Romans pocketed 360,000 pounds of gold and 730,000 pounds of silver. And they had access to mines that would be producing more. So it was a significant and profitable conquest. I might say that by comparison, Germany was less attractive to a potential conqueror Germany did not have natural resources to compare to the gold or silver of Dacia. There was a lot less wealth there. Now, Trajan's second campaign, which is even more ambitious, was the conquest of Mesopotamia, what we would call roughly Iraq. This was the heartland of the Parthian Empire, a very significant part of the Parthian Empire. And it had been a dream of the Romans even before Julius Caesar, going back well over a century and a half, a dream to conquer the Parthian Empire, and if not all of it, if not the Iranian and Central Asian parts, then certainly to conquer the Western part, to conquer Mesopotamia. And Trajan is successful to a degree, so successful that the Parthian armies melt away, and Trajan is actually able to reach the Persian Gulf. And look at the Persian Gulf. He's at the edge of the Persian Gulf. He's looking at the waters. And supposedly, the story goes, he begins to weep. Because unlike Alexander the Great, who had gone beyond the Persian Gulf and had actually invaded Pakistan and India, Trajan was too old. He couldn't do that. and So he wept because his conquests were insufficient, according to the standard of the greatest conqueror of the ancient world, Alexander. However, that was just the beginning of Trajan's problems because, not for the last time in history, an invasion of Iraq that looked successful at first, in the end, turned out to be a failure. As soon as the Romans pulled back, they were faced with rebellions up and down Mesopotamia. And Trajan was not able to hold on to his conquests. He withdrew to Syria, the Roman province of Syria, and he wanted to return for yet another campaign season. But fate got in the way. He became fatally ill. He had a stroke, probably. He thought he was being poisoned, but he was ill of natural causes. His family was with him, his wife, and other members of his family. They tried to bring him back to Italy so that he could at least die at home. But they're not successful. He dies on the way in a small out-of-the-way city on the southern coast of what is today Turkey in a rugged and mountainous area. After his death, the Romans redubbed the city as Trajanopolis, Trajan City. But they were unable to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, as the saying goes. Trajanopolis never turned into a great city. It was always a small place. Trajan's successor, Hadrian, does to Trajan what Tiberius had done to Augustus. Under Hadrian, peace broke out, and Hadrian withdrew the idea of conquering any of Mesopotamia. He made peace with the Parthians and began to put into place a very different policy. We'll talk about that in a later podcast. Finally today, I want to talk about Marcus Aurelius, who follows Hadrian and Antoninus on the throne. Marcus Aurelius rules from 161 to 180. Now, Marcus Aurelius has a great reputation as a Roman emperor. He's thought of almost in saintly terms. And that has to do both with his personality and with his goals as an emperor, and also with his famous literary work, which we'll talk about in a moment. When Marcus came to the throne, He had had almost no military experience. In fact, the guy had almost never been out of Italy in his entire life. He wasn't trained to be a soldier. He'd studied philosophy. He'd studied rhetoric. He'd studied politics. He wanted to focus on civilian affairs, but it didn't work out, not at all. Most of his reign was devoted to crises, crises abroad and a natural crisis that he could never have expected. As soon as he came to the throne, he is faced by a new war in the east with a resurgent Parthian empire, which inflicts a grave defeat on a Roman general. Rather than going to the east himself and fighting the Parthians, Marcus Aurelius takes a partner in the throne and the rule, Lucius Verus, and sends him to the east. And Verus is successful in several years of campaigning with the help of I must say, of very experienced and able Roman generals, they are able to defeat the Parthians. And if that had been the only problem that Marcus Aurelius faced, things would have gone fine, but it wasn't his only problem. Because in order to deal with the Parthian threat in the East, Marcus Aurelius had to withdraw three legions from the German frontier in the West. And the area that's particularly of concern is less the Rhine frontier than the Danube frontier, roughly what nowadays is Hungary and Austria. And while those three legions are gone, the Germanic peoples in the West pour over the frontier, and they start a war with Rome. And for the rest of his reign, Marcus Aurelius, the poor guy who wanted to be a reformer at Rome, He has to devote himself to dealing with these wars, the Germanic wars, also with dealing with a rebellion in the East, one that luckily for him ends in one of the rebels killing the rebel leader fairly early on. On top of that, he had to deal with something that will ring all too many bells for us today. He had to deal with an epidemic. He had to deal with what's called the Antonine Plague. Now, although it's called plague, it was probably not plague. Um, Most scholars think it was smallpox. It spread around the Roman Empire. It was devastating. The Roman Empire has a population of between 50 and 70 million people, and it's thought that the Antonine Plague killed a million people or more. So um, Marcus has to deal with this, and he has to deal with war, of course, The disease kills a lot of Roman soldiers, and Rome has military manpower problems that it has to deal with as well. So the campaign is long and hard, and it's marked by ups and downs, and Marcus has to learn how to be a warrior and how to fight these Germanic peoples. The Germans had become even better at war since their victory in the Tudeburger Woods in the year nine. At that time, there'd been about 50 Germanic tribes, Now, there were far fewer Germanic tribes they had organized into confederations, and many of them had served in the Roman armies over the years, and they'd brought back military manpower and knowledge of order and discipline across the border. And so, they were a very serious and significant threat for the Romans and a a difficult challenge. Of course, Marcus had to deal with this battle and that battle, but what he's best remembered for this period, during this period, is something more specific, because while He lived in a tent on the northern frontier, far away from sunny Italy, Uh, while he is living the life of a soldier, not the one that he had prepared for. He writes his Meditations, a famous book, The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. He didn't write it for publication. These were thoughts, thoughts that were private meditations. The original ancient title was To Himself. He didn't plan to publish them. It's an accident, a miracle, if you will, that they ever saw the light of day as publications. We don't know how they got published. There are various theories. My favorite one, it was his devoted daughter, the last of his children to survive him, a woman named Cornificia, that she was the one who published them. She eventually was forced to commit suicide by one of Marcus's successors. Her last words before being forced to commit suicide, supposedly were, my poor, unhappy soul, trapped in an unworthy body. Go forth. Be free. Show them that you are the daughter of Marcus Aurelius, a woman who is worthy, I think, to publish the Meditations. The Meditations are so eloquent, partly knowing that they were written under wartime conditions, partly because they offer a very rare view of the inner life of a public figure. We have memoirs from many politicians, but rarely, if ever, do we see so intimately what they were thinking during their time in office. Um, More typical, I think, is what Churchill said about his history of the Second World War. Churchill wrote a multi-volume history of the Second World War, and he won uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature, uh, largely as a result of that. Churchill said, history will justify me because I intend to write that history. I think that's more typical of what we get from when public figures write their memoirs. Marcus Aurelius' Meditations is different. It's so intimate and so thoughtful. It's not by accident that it is today the second most popular book of the Roman Empire. I often ask my students, what's the most popular book that was published during the Roman Empire? And eventually, there's always one of them who who knows the answer. The most popular book published during the Roman Empire. Do you know the answer? It's not in Latin. It's the New Testament. The New Testament, which was, of course, written and published, such as publication was in those days during the Roman Empire, was written in Greek. But so is the Meditations. Marcus Aurelius was a Roman, and he was the Roman Emperor, but he didn't write the Meditations in Latin. He wrote them in Greek, because Greek was the more prestigious language of philosophy. And even though Romans like Cicero and Seneca had written philosophy in Latin, in this period in particular, Greek had regained its prestige as the premier language of philosophy. So the meditations are written in Greek. Just a few things about this book. The focus is on the vanity of human life and on death. Marcus urges his readers to be strong. Be like the promontory against which the waves continually break, but it stands firm and tames the fury of the water around it. Marcus was not an inspired commander, but he did his job. He did his duty, and Marcus was nothing if not devoted. He wrote in his meditations, every moment, think steadily as a Roman and a man to do what you have in hand with perfect and simple dignity and a feeling of affection and freedom and justice, and give yourself relief from all other thoughts. Marcus did his job, but he didn't enjoy it. As he made clear in public, he had a low opinion of war and conquest. In fact, he compares victors to bandits. He writes, a spider is proud when it has caught a fly, and another when he's taken a little fish in a net, and another when he's taken wild boars, and another when he's taken bears, and another when he's taken German tribesmen. Aren't they robbers, if you want to look at the truth? Aren't there no better than robbers? That's what Marcus the Roman general says in the privacy of his tent about being a soldier. Marcus also displays respect for the natural world. He writes, if you work at that which is before you, following right reason seriously, vigorously, calmly, without allowing anything else to distract you, but keeping thy divine part pure, as if you should be bound to give it back immediately. If you hold to this, expecting nothing, fearing nothing, but satisfied with your present activity according to nature and with heroic truth in every word and sound which you utter, then you will live happy. And there's no man who's able to prevent this. And finally, Marcus sees himself in a bigger picture. He sees himself as part of a wider world. He's not parochial or narrow. He writes, My nature is rational and social. So far as I'm Marcus Aurelius, my city and country is Rome. But so far as I am a man, it is the world. So we started with Augustus, whose goal was empire without end. And we've come to Marcus Aurelius, whose goal is making Rome part of the world. It's what he might have referred to as the Cosmopolis, the Cosmopolis, the wider world. And Marcus Aurelius, though he was a Roman, was also a cosmopolitan, someone who had respect for the world. It's true that he wanted to conquer part of it. It's true that he spent much of his reign fighting on the Danube frontier, and that his goal was to conquer two new Roman provinces, roughly the equivalent of what is today the Czech Republic and Slovakia. He never succeeded in his goal. He died on the Danube frontier on March seventeenth in the year 180, just short of his 59th birthday. One source claims that his doctors finished him off to curry favor with his son Commodus, who was also at the front. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, you know that Commodus was not a good guy, and even less of a soldier, far less of a soldier, than Marcus Aurelius ever was. But that's another story and not the note on which I want to end. Instead, let's think about these three emperors, Augustus, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, three faces of war in the Roman Empire, three ways of peace from the Roman peace of Augustus to the cosmopolitan peace, the vision of peace, Marcus Aurelius, that he was never able to implement. That's it for today. I look forward to seeing you next time in which we're going to talk about mothers and sons, mothers and sons in the Roman Empire. I remind you again of my new book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. So until next time, I look forward to seeing you again on Antiquitas. by Lush Life.